Well, 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 good morning. It's really, really good to see you and uh, wonderful to be here. We've been so excited about this new church and this new venture ever since we were kind of part of the discussion that John and Jess were were uh, in, in consult with thinking about building a new church and, and starting this new venture. We're excited about what God's already doing here and excited about what he's going to do in the future. It's, it's a great, great optimistic view uh, looking forward forward. We, uh, we love your purpose, your purpose to follow Jesus, build families, and serve your community. Uh, that, that's what it's all about. We, uh, we need that mission in our, in our communities, in our country, and uh, I think Carolina Family Church, you've got it right, and uh, that's a great purpose, and we're looking forward to how God's going to help you all together uh, build that purpose. Thank you all for how you serve. Uh, we've been so impressed already this morning with how many people give of their, their time and their energy early on a Sunday morning uh, to get this facility ready and turn it from a school into a church. And I know it's been a little easier during the summer. Uh, a couple of weeks it's going to get harder again, and it's going to take a lot of commitment, and it's going to take a lot of effort to uh, turn this around every week. But I, I know that there's a lot of energy and commitment uh, to make that happen. We've had a wonderful week here already. We are heading out this afternoon. Uh, I actually spent a week of school uh, up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania last week. I'm involved in a doctoral program, for whatever that's worth. And uh, after I retired from my church, lo and behold, I made the crazy decision to go on for more schooling. And I'd like to be able to invest in the lives of other pastors and other people in ministry, and I thought uh, another degree might help me do that. Uh, so I went from a week of school to a week of playing with our grandchildren. And and uh, we have worn ourselves out, and I think we've maybe even worn them out. So uh, we, we had a great week, but we're going to stop in West Virginia for a couple of nights and recuperate from playing with the grandkids and uh, looking forward to a, a couple of nights of, of getaway with just the two of us. I think it was about a month ago when John and I were talking and we were talking about our trip down and that we'd be here this Sunday morning and then realizing that John and some of the team members were going to be away at the conference this week, I said, do you want me to preach? And uh, John said, hey, that, that might be good. I got to double check it. But uh, so after he came back and said, yeah, I'd like you to preach, I said, well, can I do whatever I want? <laughs> or are you in a series? And I, I should try to fit into that series. He said, well, we've, we've got this three-week series called Summer School. And we're going to do the Trinity the first week. We're going to do the Kingdom the second week. And John spoke on that last week. And then the third week, we, we just kind of targeted for the cross. And I said, well, that works out pretty well. Because if I did anything I wanted, that's what I would do. <laughs> So it was just kind of hand in glove. It was, it was perfect. So I want to talk to you this morning about the cross, the cross of Jesus, where he died. But I'm going to have to ask you to just kind of bear with me, because that's not where we're going to start off. Trust me, we're going to get there. But you're going to have to trust me. Because we're going to get there through kind of an unusual path. We're not starting in the New Testament. We're not starting in the Gospels. We're not starting with the life of Jesus. We're going to start with an Old Testament story about snakes. <laughs> snakes. I, I always get the same reaction when I mention snakes. People get kind of squirrely about snakes. 
And with apologies to the few hepatologists among us who, who love snakes, snakes make us a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, as soon as I say that, maybe some of us are channeling a couple of scenes that maybe we remember from Indiana Jones. I hate snakes. I do. I don't like them. One of our excursions this week was through the little reptile building there at Dan Nicholas, right? I don't even like them when they're in a glass cage. Some are non-venomous, others are venomous, but snakes are scary. Some of them can swallow large animals. There was a story a few years ago about a snake that swallowed a porcupine whole. It didn't go well for the snake. I was just told there's another video out about a snake swallowing a whole deer. We toyed with showing that this morning, but we, we decided maybe that was a little bit much. Maybe not the best idea. Some snakes can squeeze you to death. Maybe you've seen some of those kind of movies in the jungle. But mostly, it's the venom. It's, it's the poison. And that's often the problem. We have a problem, a revulsion, with snakes. And, and you know, we might wonder why that is. I think perhaps for those of us who live in a, in a culture that's been largely shaped by, by Jewish, Judeo-Christian heritage and, and tradition, maybe it's because somewhere deep in our psyche we, we remember the story of our humanity's fall and that our original parents, Adam and Eve, were led into sin by Satan, the great adversary of God, taking the form of of a serpent, a snake. And, and at that point, it, it seems like they, they had legs, but then God told them, no more walking. You're going to slither from here on out. Maybe, maybe that's why we've, we've got this thing with snakes. That connection with Satan as serpent courses throughout the Bible. He's not only called that at the beginning of the Bible, but he's called that at several places as the story of the Bible unfolds. So this morning, we come to a story where Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, they're, they're making their way in, the, in what we call the Exodus. They're, they're coming out of Egypt and they're heading toward the Promised Land. But during that time as they're heading from Egypt to the Promised Land, what, what should have taken several months takes 40 years. Because the people continually complain against God. They, they, they grouch about what God's giving them and what God's doing for them. And finally, upon a strategic day, God says, you know what? I'm not going to take you in. This generation that's come out of Egypt, the adults, are, are not going to go in. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation dies off, and, and then I'll take your, your children in. And that's what he does. And the story we, we look at this morning is during that period, and it's one of ten significant times when Israel complains against God. 
and complains against Moses. And this time, God's really ticked. And the judgment that God brings on the people is a judgment of snakes. So we're headed to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible or you've got your electronic device and you, and you want to go there, it's in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. And it's during that wandering period. It's while Israel was, was out there in the wilderness. And as they're traveling, God has been providing them a miraculous food every day. As best we can tell, it was like a sort of a bread-like wafer. And it would appear on the ground every morning. And they were instructed to go out and, and take it, and, and that would keep them going. That would sustain them throughout their journey. It was called manna. Interesting enough, the word manna actually means what is it? Because when the first time that God gave manna, the people looked at it, and they looked at the ground, and they said, what is it? And they said, we'll call it manna. From here on out, what is it? And every day, God gave them manna, except on the Sabbath day. The day before the Sabbath, God would give them two days' worth because they weren't to work on the Sabbath. So, we come to Numbers chapter 21. And this little story unfolds actually in, in two scenes, and we're going to take it just that way. Scene one, which is the trouble. And then scene two, which is the remedy. So listen, if you, if you can, and, and look on the screen or look in your, in your Bible if you've got it, and let's look at just verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, From Mount Hor, they, the people of Israel, set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And, and all of that is, is really not that important to us right now. It says, And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, snakes. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people grumble and complain against God. They, they complain about their circumstance. They complain that they don't have enough water, and God has provided them water on several occasions. They complain that they don't have enough food when God has provided them food. Not only the manna, but God has provided them with quail at many times. But the people say, this is detestable. We won't take it anymore. And as in many of these stories, we might be a bit taken back by the severity of God's reaction. I mean, think about it. Complaining is pretty common. 
Maybe you complained once or twice in your life. We don't have to teach our children to complain, do we? Complaining, if you took a list of sins and, and, and you rated them up from, from the smallest sins to the, the biggest sins, probably most of us wouldn't, wouldn't put complaining up near the top, right? We, we can think of some of the sins that would be up there in the top, but, but complaining, well, maybe we don't even think that, that ought to rise to the level of a sin. That's just being human. But they complain. And God takes it very seriously. Complaining that there was a shortage of water, that's understandable to an extent. Complaining that they longed for more variety in their diet at some level, we probably would have felt that way too. But they do more than that. They refer to the manna that God has given them as detestable. And I think... That's the crucial thing. That, that's really an act of rebellion. Whether it was in their mind or whether it was on their lips, that's an act of rebellion. To despise the manna was to despise God's very direct and gracious and generous provision. To despise the manna was to despise the bread that God had given them. To despise the manna was to despise God Himself and His leader, Moses. That's the first thing I want you to get. I want you to see that their failure was in despising God's provision. Despising God's provision. God had provided this manna as a, as a generous gift to them but they despised it. They, they refused to value it. They took what God had given them and they took it for granted. But beneath the despising of the manna, I think was a, an even deeper problem. Because beneath the despising of the manna, there was an expression of what I am convinced more and more is the very core of our fallen sin, and that is distrust. Not only were they guilty in that moment of despising God's provision, but they were guilty of distrusting God. Now why, why do I say that's at the very core of our sinfulness? Because if you rewind all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's what Satan sowed into the minds of our original parents, Adam and Eve. Satan said, God said you can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. Do you really believe that? Are you not sure that God might just be holding out on you? That really that's the very best thing that you could possibly get? And that if you eat that tree, you'll be like God? You'll, you'll know good and evil. You'll, you'll have insight far beyond what you have now. And he sowed seeds of distrust in their minds. And ever since, we've been prone to distrust God. They despised God, 
and they just distrusted God. And because of that, God brings judgment. Why did God, in this case, use snakes? You know, if you read the whole Bible story, in the whole story of the Old Testament, there were many times when, when God brought discipline, God brought judgment on, on His people because of their sin. But this is the only time He uses snakes. Why? I think because this one time was such a significant expression of what's wrong with us at the core. That we don't appreciate God for who He is. We despise His good gifts and we distrust Him. And so God brings snakes, the very creature that had led to our fall. And in this story, He brings snakes as His expression of judgment. Now, there's a difference in this story, not only because of the snakes, but whereas in many other cases, God brings the judgment and the people still resist and fight God. In this case, they wake up pretty quickly. And we're going to see in scene two that they ask Moses to pray that God would give them relief, that God would bring a remedy, and God does. And so not only in this story is there a warning about the nature of, of the pollution and venom of sin in us, but there's also another scene. A scene in which God brings what we might call a healing anti-venom. A healing antidote to the problem. We're going to pick it up then in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And whoever is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And then if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. We might call this second scene the healing anti-venom. Now, now, we have to think about the story a little bit. Notice what the people ask. They say, Moses, pray that God will take the snakes away. And he doesn't take the snakes away. There, there's something there in that. He doesn't take it away. He gives them a remedy. You know, maybe God would just give them a way to kill all the snakes. He doesn't do that. Maybe God would directly kill all the snakes Himself, and they'd all curl up and die. He doesn't do that. Maybe God would give someone the ability to play music and lead the snakes all out of the city like the Pied Piper did in a different story than not from the Bible. But none of that is what God chooses to do. Instead, 
he devises and implements what we might only call a most surprising plan as an antidote. God says to Moses, make a snake. Lift it up on a pole. I think we can assume that they put it somewhere on maybe a, a, a rise in the middle of the camp so that everyone could see it. It was visible. Maybe a very tall pole. And anyone who was bitten can look at it and live. So Moses does that. He makes a bronze snake. He puts it on a pole. And sure enough, those who look are healed. Those who look live. Here's the essence of what God does. I call it God's surprising remedy. He brought life by what brought death. God takes the, 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 the agent of their judgment and He meets it and He transforms it as an expression of His mercy. God, God could have done anything. He could have said, take the Ark of the Covenant into the middle of the, of the camp and anybody who looks at the Ark of the Covenant will be healed. He, he could have said, offer a sacrifice. And anybody who, who turns and, and respects the sacrifice will be healed. But he said, take one of the snakes. Make a snake. And put it on a pole. He, he took the symbol of their sin and judgment. And he used that as the expression of his mercy. He, he married them together. Judgment and mercy, all in the same symbol. One of my mentors in studying the Old Testament way back when in seminary was a professor by the name of Dr. Ronald Allen. No direct cousin of, of us, but his name was the same as mine. And, and I love what he said as he wrote on this story. Listen to what he said. He said, the people had called the bread of heaven detestable. And Moses was commanded by God to make an image of something truly detestable in their culture and to hold that high on a pole as their only means of deliverance. Only those who looked at the image of the snake would survive the venom that coursed through their bodies. This was an extraordinary act of culture shock. An exceptionally daring use of potent symbols as the people had transformed the gracious bread of heaven into detestable food, so now the Lord transformed a symbol of death into a source of life and deliverance. The rejection of God's grace brought that symbol of death. The intervention by God's grace brought a source of life. God answered His justice with His mercy. And He put it all right there on the pole. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. God's simple requirement. Just a trusting look brought healing and life. If we think and discuss a bit deeper into why God should do it this way, we realize that in this way, their healing became an expression of trust. God didn't ask them to do anything spectacular. Just look. 
but they had to look. And in looking, they were expressing the fact that they trusted that what God was saying was true and what God had provided was what they needed. They could have said, hey, look, I'm not looking at a stupid, stupid serpent on a pole. That doesn't make any sense. That's not logical. It's not, that's not scientific to think that looking at a serpent on a pole would, would bring me healing. Give me some kind of medicine. Give me an herbal remedy. Give me, give me something. Cut the, cut the wound of the snake and, and, and let my blood do something. No, God said, just look. And if you look, you'll be healed and you'll have life. It was an act of trust to look. Just look. Just trust. You see, if distrust is our root sin, then the most important thing God can ask of us, the thing He does ask of us, is to come back into trust. If if the root of our sin is distrust, then what God asks of us is trust. And that's why in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what we need in order to get right with God is trust, faith in Him once again. That's the Old Testament story. But the fact is that this Old Testament story has a far greater significance than just what we've seen already. It's got much more meaning than just an Old Testament story. In fact, it looks forward in a significant and powerful way to the New Testament. In that story, we see a powerful lesson about how God acts. That story is more than just an Old Testament story. It's a story that looks forward to the New Testament. I I promised you we would come to the cross. And indeed we do. We come to the New Testament story. And in order to make that connection, we come to what is one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, if not the most familiar. It's the verse that people often think about when they think about Christians. It's it's the verse that people put on placards and hold up behind the goalposts at football games. Most all of us, I suspect, no matter how far along you are in a a following relationship with Jesus, we we know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But when we hear that verse, and when people put it on a placard behind the goalpost at a football game, what is often missed is that that verse doesn't just stand in in the middle of nowhere. Actually, that verse, spoken by Jesus Himself, is an elaboration and a connection to this Old Testament snake story. Because in order to understand John 3.16, we really should wind back to John 3.14, 15, and then 16, which say this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, that's how He referred to Himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is based on that Old Testament snake story. Jesus says that story tucked away in the Old Testament is a powerful advance illustration, I believe intended by God, the pictures what I'm going to have to do. As that serpent was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness, I'm going to have to be lifted up. He's talking about His crucifixion. I have to be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, that will make it possible for those who believe in Me to be saved. When Jesus says saved, He means delivered from the dilemma of the venom of sin. The, the infection of sin, the poison of sin, that we can be forgiven, that we can be changed, and that we can be given the hope of eternal life. Jesus says that's, a, that's, that's an illustration. If, if you can just get that, and he's talking to a, a religious leader named Nicodemus who undoubtedly knew this story well. He says to him, if, if you can just see that story and think about it, you, you'll, you'll get an understanding of what I've got to do when I die on the cross. And, and so let me just quickly draw the connection for you between what we saw in that story and what we see in the cross of Jesus. Because that's really where we want to focus this morning. And what we see here is just like the Old Testament story, we see God's surprising remedy. He gives healing and life by Christ's death on the cross. There's a sense in which on the cross, Jesus is demonstrating the anger of God at sin. He, he's showing the, the justice of God because He's taking our sin and guilt upon Himself. But in that taking of our sin, our guilt, our wrong, God is offering us and displaying for us His forgiveness and mercy. Just like in the Old Testament picture, he's, he's putting judgment and mercy together. Those two are married when Jesus dies on the cross. God's mercy answers His judgment. Because if we paid the price of our sin, we're, we're, we're all lost. But Jesus died as the Son of God to take our penalty. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 it says for our sake God made him Christ to be sin he who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God because Jesus died on the cross God is then free to forgive us and accept us and give us life through the resurrection of Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the curse. 
He on the cross took the judgment of God so that we could have the mercy of God. And that was pictured so well in that Old Testament story. That bronze serpent on the pole was a powerful sign of victory over sin and judgment. And even so, the death of Christ on the cross followed by the resurrection is a powerful sign of victory. The Apostle Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the cross was the victory of God over our sin and guilt and His own judgment in a sense as His mercy was extended so that we could be forgiven. But the second thing, the second thing that flows right from that Old Testament story is this. God's simple requirement. Just a trusting look brings healing and life. All God asked for the Israelites to be healed of the venom was to look in trust at the snake. There are perhaps a number of things that they could have done. They could have tried to use an herbal remedy. They could have tried to let blood and... and uh, you know, lance the wound and, and try to get the venom out. They, they might have tried to, to purge the, the snakes from their midst, but none of that was what God asked them to do. He said, just look. Just trust. And, and as Jesus applies that, He makes it so clear that that's all God asks us to do. There, there's no religious deed. There, there's no penance. There's nothing you need to do. Just believe. Just trust that what Jesus does on the cross is what we need to be forgiven and to have life through His resurrection. Whoever believes in Me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, some people think that they need to balance the scales with, with good moral deeds. Some people think they need to do certain religious rituals. Some people think they need to punish themselves and, and do forms of penance. But what God asks is both simpler and harder than that. It's simpler because it, it's just believing. It's, it's no external actions. But it's harder because we in our human fallenness, we, we want to try to do it ourselves. We, we'd like to think that we can somehow merit God's favor and God's acceptance. It's both simpler and it's harder, but it's what God asks of us. Just trust me. Trust in the death of Jesus as the payment for your sin, and you'll be forgiven and accepted and have life. I, I love this note that's in the life application version of the Bible. It says this, those doomed to die from snakebite could be healed by obeying God's command to look up at the elevated bronze snake and by believing that God would heal them if they did. Similarly, our salvation happens when we look up to Jesus, believing He will save us. God has provided this way for us to be healed of sin's deadly bite. Here, here's the big point of all of this. Look to Jesus who was lifted up as the antidote to sin's venom. Just look to Him in faith and trust. Let's pray.
Maybe you're here this morning and, and uh, you, you've come to Carolina Family Church a few times. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been here a while. But, but maybe God's Spirit has taken what this story said in the Old Testament. And, it, and the Spirit has taken what Jesus said there in John chapter 3. And it's making more sense. It's making more sense this morning. You see that it's about Jesus taking our guilt, our sin, and, and being judged for it so that we could have God's mercy. And, and it's refreshing to hear that all we have to do is believe it, trust in it, throw our dependence on that, believe that that's what we need to be forgiven and healed and have life with God, to believe on Him. If, if you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision before, you express your faith to God in, in prayer. You call on Him. And you can express that to God in, in a little prayer like this. Lord God, I, I realize that I've not done everything You would want me to do. I've done those things that You would not want me to do. I, I'm sinful and I need forgiveness. And I want to become Your child. I want to have forgiveness. I want to be accepted by You. I want a relationship with You. And, and I see, I see today that it's by believing in Jesus that I can have that. And so right now, I look to Jesus. I, I turn my trust to Him. And I believe that He died for my sin. And I choose to believe that He rose again so that I could have eternal life. And I want to accept Your gift of life. If you just call out to God with a simple prayer like that, he will hear that prayer. And if indeed you've prayed that prayer, He has forgiven your sin and accepted you as His child. Now there's lots to learn. There's lots of growth to happen. And John's going to come at the end of the service and explain maybe how you can express that and grow in your faith and walk with God. But it's just that simple. Holy God, Father God, thank You for loving us. Thank you for placing in, in your Scripture these stories that, that have impact and, and influence far beyond their, their contemporary occasion. Thank you that the whole story of the Bible points us forward to Jesus so that we in Jesus can know you and know your forgiveness and know your life. Thank you for loving us and meeting your justice with your mercy at the cross of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.